Welcome to the Core Kinetic Podcast. My name is Ben Cormack and I will be your host. The Core Kinetic Podcast aims to bring you clinically relevant information on topics throughout the clinical world. Also, some very, very special guests along the way bringing you their expertise. We hope to deliver this with fun, flexibility and also some good, solid, old-fashioned evidence. Nothing in this podcast constitute medical advice, but we hope you enjoy it anyway. Welcome to the Core Kinetic Podcast, uh, episode six. I always get confused exactly which episode it is, and I probably don't care that much. But we have um, another fantastic guest on this week uh, with Steve uh, Camper from the University of Sydney. How are you getting on, Steve? Going well. Going well. Thanks for having me along. No worries, mate. The pleasure is all mine to have, you know, someone that I really respect and, and look up to and has always been very generous with their time with me, with, with emails and discussions and articles and all those things. So, so that's uh, so that's my pleasure. Thank you for coming along. Um, and what we're going to do today is talk just a little bit around. Um, I think evidence is really what kind of um, I've, I've mostly known Steve for recently. Recent JOSPT series on using evidence in practice, which I think is really really important. Although I know Steve has also done some other like qualitative work into you know kind of looking at. Um, other factors in physio and what patients uh, are really looking for and those type of things, which is also fantastic. But Steve, could you just introduce yourself really quickly? I can. Uh, so Spencer, my name's Steve. I'm a physiotherapist by training. Um, I haven't treated patients for quite a long time. Um, that's probably best for everyone um <laughs> i yeah so i've been i'm a, a clinical researcher so that means i do research which is uh trying to look at uh questions which are at the interface of care delivery so not so much discovering new things but how we get the best of what we know to to people um and part of that has been an interest in helping clinicians in particular uh, understand and use, use research evidence in their practice. So my position at the moment, I, I've just started a new position three weeks ago, actually. Um, oh, I saw that, Steve. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, so I'm, I'm, I work for the university, but I'm um, embedded in the public health service, uh, where my role is to um, support allied health um, clinicians uh, to do research as part of their day-to-day -day practice. Um, and so it's, I, I'm really excited about the role. Um, I think it's going to be heaps of fun. There's lots of big challenges. Um, and no doubt lots of people are aware of that'll be listening to this. Um, but yeah, I have, uh, I have big visions and, and big ambitions for, for, for that line of work. So I'm excited to, to get into it. Yeah. So no, and, and I, and I will look forward to seeing some of the fruits of your, of your labor, Steve. Now I had all these deep and meaningful questions lined up and we had a little chat off air and it kind of just screwed it all up and threw it all up in the air because we were having a really interesting discussion so I like the organic nature of this and um, what I started off by talking about was just kind of my experiences at undergrad and postgrad with statistics and kind of getting into statistics and learning them uh, as I was saying to Steve, I learned them in in an environment that was also with doctors and nurses. It was a kind of you know the 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 health 
the uh, allied health kind of school, if you like. And um, and I was saying a lot of kind of the way that I learned statistics was, you know, quite complicated and very much to do with the maths. And and often I'll think I have a really good grasp of a statistical concept and then I'll read something by someone very good at stats and it will just kind of ruin my confidence and ruin my day. And I'll be just morose and depressed about it for ages because I kind of thought I'd reached this nirvana. Um, and so I just wanted to kind of uh, pick your brain, Steve, a little bit about, you know, how we can, should kind of maybe teach some of these uh, statistical concepts to people and, and, and what might be, you know, good ways and bad ways that we do it. OK, um, so I think the, the first thing is, uh, is people who do statistics for a living and write papers about statistics are writing stuff generally that's really complicated. Um, and um, I yeah, I'm, find myself in the same boat reading a lot of that stuff as well. I don't understand it and it goes way over my head. Um, I think, though, for the purpose of what we're doing in clinical practice, most of the times complicated statistics is not necessary. Um, and, and I think the way that we teach people who are going to be clinicians about research methods uh, is... It's a bit ass up. We start with really hard and boring stuff and don't give the the, the basis or the, the fundamental principles which sit underneath research methods. Um, and, and, and that was a little bit, I think, the inspiration for the, the Evidence in Practice series was from talking to people and realising that uh, people are really worried about how to do a t-test and how to define a p-value. And, and, and I'm here to tell you that's that's not what matters about using research in practice um and it's not what matters about understand you know appraising research that you pick up um with a fairly simple set of principles i'd argue that 90 percent of the research you can make a decent stab at deciding whether it's good bad or indifferent um and 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 so the the series is really set up to try and set out some of those really basic principles and why they're used in research and what purpose they serve. So, so I think the the research methods training that we give clinicians needs to sort of take one or two or three steps back um, and and really talk about how we uh, how research as a as a um, a machine gives us good quality information because that's what well, that's what I think the, 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 the point of it is is to give us some, some some information and and all the research methods are just ways of, 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 of trying to get information which is of good quality to answer the question. Yeah I, I never really felt that when I've done statistics in a formal way, that I've ever really had someone explain the concepts to me, you know, what that what is a, a p-value telling me, or what is a confidence interval telling me, or what is a standard deviation telling me, or any of these things. It's been very much, this is how the this is how the test works, or this is how the statistics work, not yeah. necessarily the actual concepts behind those. Do you think we could maybe um, start with the concepts first? Yeah, for sure. And but I think I think there's even even concepts that concepts which are more important even than the statistical concepts. And they're, and they're the they're the I, I I like to sometimes call an RCT as, as as just an engine for 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 spitting out 
um, uh, an answer to a question of how big the difference is between two groups. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. and each division is two. And 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 and, the, and all the parts of the engine are just to give us an answer which is of which we can be more sure of. So all those parts being inclusion exclusion criteria, randomization, um, concealed allocation, blinding, um, the 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 measurement properties of the the outcomes, all these things, they're just components that they're parts of the engine. Which mean we're better, we 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 we're more confident that the answer we end up with is is closer to to, to what we'll see um, in real life. Um, and, and and so understanding those components and and statistics is one of those bits. Right. Yeah. Um, and 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 so um, and I, I I in my opinion most of the questions that we want to answer the the ones that we're going to find interesting as as clinicians. Um, the the statistics that you need to answer those are pretty simple. Um, there's only a few types of statistics that you really need to understand, and 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 understanding them in in fairly general terms is probably enough. Yeah, I mean, just trying to navigate SPSS was always my big <laughs> my biggest challenge, which I always found could probably do with a user interface overhaul somewhere along the way but we do have statistical packages that do the heavy lifting don't they in 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 terms of those type of things absolutely i mean the i guess we've got it we've got a couple of um we, we might be talking about a couple of different things one is is doing the research yourself um and the other is picking up a paper and and, and making sense of it hmm. um you know the, the the doing research yourself bit the only thing you really need to know is the limits of your own understanding because there's, if you're doing research yourself and you don't understand something, then you just need to find someone who does to help you. Yeah. Um, And the, the the reality is um, for most clinicians, their, their, their contact and interaction with research um, will be reading papers and, 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 and trying hopefully to, to integrate that information into their treatment decisions. Um, yep. and, and so in that case, actually the, the, the level of understanding you need of something like statistics is, is really not that high. Yeah. And, and, and well, well within the grasp of, of, of anyone who's managed to get themselves through a, um, an undergraduate degree. Yeah, yeah. As you say, probably the in, the internal validity aspects are going, and the external validity aspects are going to be more applicable to to kind of answer the question that you're you're looking to answer. So look, here we go. That segues nicely into actually one of my questions, which is nice. We've got back on track. I've once I go off piste, I very rarely get back on piece. So this is <laughs> this is amazing, Steve. This is. Yeah. I'm put it. I'm going to put it down to you. Um, I'll see what I can do for you, Ben. Yeah, yeah. You put me, you you put me back on the straight and narrow, and I don't think anyone has done that in many, many years. So good job, Steve. Um, so one of the things there was a paper that came out a couple of years ago that was discussing the fact that evidence has become much harder to read, and that we are act, it's actually being written at a, a kind of much more academic level. It's it's actually less accessible now than it was um, a few years ago, and I, I can't remember which field that they were discussing, but. Um, that I, I mean, I get that sense generally that some papers almost feel un, in, impenetrable sometimes in the way that they're written. Um, 
how do you think and I know and I asked this question because I know that that you know making things more accessible is important so how do you feel that from a research level people can make their work more digestible for your average numpty like myself uh all right the how can researchers do a better job um part of the problem is a systemic problem with the way that research is produced in universities um researchers write for researchers right uh, yeah um and and the the metrics that are used to judge whether a paper is a good paper uh, from the point of view uh, of the the university and therefore of importance to the to the researcher uh, you know what journal is it in uh, and that judge that this decision as to whether something's accepted or not is made by researchers and whether it's cited or not it's only researchers that cite research yeah um, and so there's a there's a systemic push for researchers to write in a way, for, for for other researchers um that's always been the case I, I don't know whether research is getting harder to read i am not surprised at all that people that don't have research training find it hard to read um because a lot of it is unnecessarily complex in the way that it's written mm. um and and you know that <laughs> Um, researchers have a whole set of problems of their own, right? And, and, <laughs> and, 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 like everybody and, else. <laughs> exactly, exactly right. And, and one of those problems is, is particularly when you're starting out, there's a, there's a massive insecurity in, research, in amongst researchers. And, you know, it, 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 I don't know if it, you've heard of it, there's this thing called imposter syndrome, right? And, and, and when you go and start doing a PhD, you come in there and you're surrounded by all these really smart people and everyone's smarter than you and you know you the the guy who's or girl who's your supervisor has got you know 500 publications and they've got 20 million dollars worth of grants and they're a professor and you're, and you're going i'm not smart enough to be here and so you write to try and show how smart you are and and that's a real thing and 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 people and and i i see that often and i see people giving presentations speaking in a way which they would never speak to if you're having a conversation like this they wouldn't mm. speak like that and if they were writing in an email or something like that or more people don't write letters anymore but if they were to, to the to their friend or whatever they wouldn't write yeah. that way um and i mean so so i think there's that there's that sort of a systemic culture in the way that things are presented and then there's this other other sort of thing where people feel insecure and 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 mm. and you know, and, and are trying to live up to to and demonstrate that they fit um, in this environment. Um, and it, it's, you know, and I, I'm forever indebted to the example of a guy called Rob Herbert. Um, I don't know if, if you've heard of him. He's a, he's a physio in Australia, but um, really, really smart guy. He, he wrote um, a, a book called Practical Evidence-Based Physiotherapy, and it's, mm. it's a Bible for this stuff. It's really good. Rob's probably the smartest person I know, but also the clearest uh, and simplest presenter and writer. And and I was very fortunate to meet him early on in career and in my career and, and go, hey, even if you're really smart, you can write short sentences and 
short words and make things very clear and very straightforward. And that was a real lesson for me. Um, but it, it and it also made me realise when I'm reading a lot of stuff, people don't write that way. Um, yeah. And as I said, I think there's a couple of reasons for, for why that's the case. Yeah, and uh, that, that's very candid. And sometimes I think it's really important for you know, everyone to understand each other's perspectives, because that gives you an idea about why these things happen. And, you know, no one in this life seems to be immune from problems, Steve, do they? Apparently not. <laughs> they just, you know, they, they are just different problems and problems you've never actually um, potentially considered. And I suppose there's a word for it. I think it might be called perspective. I'm not sure. Um, something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. something. I don't know. I've never learned it. Um, so, how do you feel? I mean, there's there's going to be two parts to this question, because I don't want to come across as saying that does this need to change? Because it mm. might be that it doesn't need to change. You know, I, I from a clinical perspective, it might be presumptuous to say that, you know, you need to change the way that you write or do things and that because that, you know, that might not be the case. But if we were to if 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 you could make some changes how could we make it a little bit more clinically applicable, do you think? And not clinically applicable, that's the wrong word. Clinically digestible. Mm -hmm. All right. So uh, if I, I maybe start with addressing your uh, foreplay to the question, I guess, um, and, and say... I think there's a mutual dependency between clinicians and research and clinical researchers okay. such that uh, if clinicians are not using research to update their practice and inform their practice, what are they using? Yeah. And yeah. what's the mechan what's the mechanism for updating what you're doing? Yeah. And, and I, I, I don't know the answer to that if research isn't involved in some way. So, and from, from the other point of view, sorry, from the other point of view, as a clinical researcher, if our research is not being used in clinical practice, it serves only our individual careers. Right. So yeah. it, it, it has no purpose. If it, it's, it's clinical research. It doesn't serve a purpose other than to inform clinical practice. So there has uh, to be some form of symbiosis here. I agree. I agree. And so and so that 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 disconnect that you're talking about um in my view is a massive problem yeah it's i mean i don't want to yeah i don't want to say it's a disconnect because i don't want to you know i don't want to put any value or judgment on that you know I, I that's important to me um but i i, I do think that you know we it, we okay. you, do, you, do you understand where i'm trying to come from i don't you know i i, I don't know if i don't want I, to I do it. i do i i mean wait 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 yeah, no, no, I, uh, I guess, I, okay, I will meet you on the language and say I agree it's a disconnect. Um, I'll add my value to it. I think that's a bad thing. Okay, um, and, fine. And free you from having <laughs> – so I, I think I think the disconnect is a problem um, and, and, and for those reasons that I said. Um, so how do we make it better? Um, I think we make it better by shifting and, and – shifting research and researchers out of universities and into practice and so and so that means and i don't mean no research should happen uh in universities only but i think we need to be doing far more clinical research 
um, as part of what's going on in practice? I think I think one way to make a change is 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 start getting uh, is starting to get clinicians and researchers working together on research, and 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 one way of thinking about that, or one way to do that, I would argue, is to have clinicians provide uh, start the starting ideas, the questions. Yeah. Um, and the clinician and the researchers provide those technical skills in understanding research methods and operate. So, so, so what that means is, I think at least a proportion of clinical research can be researchers coming to clinicians and helping them solve their problems, and that's different to researchers coming with coming up with ideas. And asking clinicians to help them get the patient so they can solve the researcher's problem. Right. And so, and 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 uh, and I think this is part of where the you know we've got this there's called an evidence practice gap or there's this research pl- translation problem, whatever else. I think if you keep researchers working in universities and clinicians working in practices or hospitals or whatever. And, 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 and conducting their business separately, then you're always going to have this problem with a gap. Mm. Um, and, and, and I think we can, we're a long way from working out a way to, to have clinicians and researchers work together. And for me, and, and, and I guess this speaks a little bit to the role that I've taken on, I'm become far less interested in my questions and I want to be. I want to. I want to be a person whose set of technical skills can be used to solve someone else's questions, because there's no reason for me as a researcher to think I should be the one which who comes up with uh, with 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 the relevant and important questions. There's a whole other set of issues which are, are barriers to that happening, and um, I don't think the whole thing has to move completely to that model, um, but. Uh, I think that's the way research, clinical research should be shifting, and I think it is shifting that way, and I think it will continue to, to do so. Um, there's, there's, there's problems with the way that academics are measured, um, and there are problems with the time that clinicians have to spend on different things. Um, so so there are issues that need to be worked out. Um, but I think that's, that's a way forward in, in, to, to, to producing outputs which are of more use to the people who are likely to use them i.e clinicians yeah i mean there's so much research that comes out and you know i am only kind of one person but i do read through some of the questions and i do think where did that question come from (laughs) i don't know if you ever do that with the reams of research And, and i suppose there is the caveat that as one person, you only have one set of questions and you have your own biases, but some of them do seem a little esoteric, don't they? A little left field. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and that's partly that there's all sorts of reasons for researchers to be doing research. You know, I I said, fundamentally the point of clinical research is to, to, um, uh, to, to inform practice, but uh, success as a researcher to some extent depends on a high volume of output. Mm. Um, 
that means searching for studies to do, searching, yeah. searching, for, and, and and because that that pressure on on output is such, uh, sometimes that that well not sometimes that definitely means uh, opportunistic research happens, and right. there you know there might be a data set waiting for a waiting for a study to happen, um, rather than a question driving. Uh, what you know the, the the study yeah yeah so right so i'm going to get back on to onto my questions here and i think this is a, another important one that we have that i think is pretty clinically applicable um yeah. and and it's really kind of how we use research within clinical practice so from a from a clinical point of view how do we start to take you know, how, how, how should we start to interpret or just interpret, not start, um, mm. interpret kind of population level data that we see at a clinical level? Because I do think that there is a there is sometimes this perception that what you see in a research paper is what you're going to see on, in your patient. And I'm not entirely sure that I, I, I think that's true. What, what, what's your perspective, Steve? Yeah, OK. Uh, um, uh <sighs> One of the things that that I think is is helpful in 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 setting this issue out is is the question of what research evidence is, um, and to my mind, and I guess where I've come to with with thinking about this sort of stuff a lot and teaching it a bit and talking to a lot of people about it to clinicians and so on, is research evidence is just a piece of information. Okay, so it's it's it, you can think of it as you know a post-it note. Now, when you have a patient standing in front of you, you have this whole series of post-it notes of information. Mm. So you've got one which is uh, your memory of treating patients who look like this. So that's another piece of information. Yeah, you've got uh, information which has come from your training, your undergrad training, and. And that might be the specific training of these sort of patients. You've got that in a post-it note. You've got your training in anatomy and physiology and your understanding of the way that human body works. You've got that on a post-it note. You've got PD courses that you've been to. You've got stuff you've read online. You've had got chats you've had with colleagues. You've got stuff you read on Twitter, whatever it is. So you've got this whole series of post-it notes, right? And, and these are all pieces of information. Now, your job as a clinician is to boil them down and make a decision based on them. So in that regard, research evidence is just another piece of information. Now, the difficult thing to do is is weight all those post-it notes. Yeah. Right. So 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 how do I how do I weigh up? Uh, you know, should I put more? You know, when I'm making this decision, should I be more influenced by what I know from uh, or what I remember from my undergrad, or should I put more weight on chat I had with my colleague, or the way that my, you know, the the other person in my practice treats these patients, um, or I should should I put more weight on this study that I've read? So 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 you're never just going taking one of those post-it notes and going, this is it, this is what I'm doing, um, and to me that that describes. The clinical reasoning process, right? Yeah. So, so because you, 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 on those post-it notes is information you're getting from the patient as well, uh, and their preferences and their history and all that sort of stuff too. Um, so, 
you're weighing all these up. Um, you're never just making a decision based on one of them. You're casting some of them out, and you're casting them out because you don't think they're applicable in this situation, mm-hmm. and you're upweighting some and downweighting the others. Um, now, what you should also be doing with all those post-it notes is appraising them. So how reliable is that piece of information? How how good is that information? You know how you know. I read this thing on Twitter and he was a lunatic. That piece of information is probably <laughs> shit. I'm not going to pay any attention to it, right? <laughs> well, I think that happens to me all the time. So, well, I think that happens <laughs> about me potentially. So. <laughs> <laughs> so so, but what you're doing there, you're appraising that information. Yeah. You're deciding it's poor quality, and you're discarding it. All right. And and you should be doing that with all those pieces of information. The difference with research evidence is that we have this sort of framework for making judgments about the reliability of information. And so these are the, you know, study quality checklists and um, and, and the hierarchy of rev- evidence and all this sort of stuff. And and, and those, those sort of things help you decide how reliable that piece of information is. The reality is, though, we should be doing it for all the other bits of information as well and also understanding that we've got all sorts of biases, right? So we're biased by our identity as a as a clinician. We're biased by um, we're we're probably got financial skin in the game as well. We've got all sorts of things which are which are impacting on our capacity to really objectively synthesise all these bits of information. So I promise I'll get to answering your question. <laughs> no, no, um, I'm <laughs> preamble. It's good. <laughs> um, so. We've got this piece of research evidence, right? And it's the, um, I don't know, uh, let's say it's a, uh, it's a, it's the difference in effect between two treatment options that you have for this patient and it's yay big and um, that's the mean or an estimate of the mean in the population. How do you apply that to, to your patient? Um, so I would say... You look at um, how well your patient fits into that population, and within that population, you'll have some idea of who's likely to be a bigger responder and who's likely to be a, a smaller responder, based on all those other bits of information you have about that patient as well. Mm. Um, and and so you 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 sort of modulate your expectations of of that piece of evidence based on more specific information that you have of the patient um so i don't have i have i got to yeah I question? Think, yeah, yeah i think that you know you're you're kind of you, you've laid it out as it as it as it's meant to be that it is only what and this ties back in where i had roger kerry on here a, a couple mm-hmm. of months ago and and yeah. it kind of ties in a lot with what rog says you know that that it's um, you, you have to put these things into perspective. There's lots of different types of evidence. You have to mm. weigh it up. But I do yep. think that we have got to a point with evidence-based medicine sometimes where, you know, actually we've moved away from um, the idea that there are lots of pieces of evidence, that this kind of very empirical one has reached the top of the tree. Mm. Um, I mean, that depending on the study itself, there's, there's probably good reason to weight it more highly than other pieces of yep. information. But 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 that's what you're doing, and 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 as I said, I think that um, you know maybe the, the 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 what needs to go along with appraising research evidence 
is appraising all the other bits of evidence as well. Right? Yeah. And, 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 so, and so thinking about, well, how is, how is my clinical, my recollection of other patients who I think look like this, how is that, what's that biased by? What are the yeah. chances, you know, what are the chances of that that's giving me a really good estimation of what's going to happen? But that's hard uh, work, Steve, isn't it? Regulating your own biases. Yeah, it's a pain <laughs> in the ass. That, that, that's the tough bit. It's <laughs> easier to have everyone regulate your bias, have the biases regulated via an RCT, isn't it? Absolutely right. And and, and this is, and this is, I think, um, you know, speaks to, uh, I guess, uh, some stuff I read, which is you're either doing evidence-based medicine or you're doing clinical reasoning. Yeah. Um, and 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 I I don't see them as different things. Right. I, I, I see I see you have to do clinical reasoning. You can't not do it. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's 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 just it's just whether or not and the way that you incorporate research evidence into that. Which yeah, which, which makes it evidence-based medicine. Yeah, and, so, and 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 I and I don't understand the argument for not using research evidence, not appraising it, and not using that as a piece of information. You, I'm I'm absolutely I'm perfectly fine with you picking up a study and going, well, that's bullshit, or it doesn't apply, or it's so bad that it's it provides nothing of value for an individual study. But I can't believe that as a standpoint, you would say. I'm not using information which comes from research evidence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it falls into kind of a little bit of my next question that mm-hmm. I think we approach all these things quite dichotomously, don't we? You know, it's, as you said, it's either evidence-based medicine or it's clinical reasoning. It's not the amalgamation of both. Um, yep. and, and one of the other things that I see a lot of is this idea that we, you know, we test things to see if they work or they don't work. As you said, you know, we will take two interventions, we'll test them against each other, we'll have a hypothesis that A is going to be better than B, A works better than B does, you know, we'll use a p-value to confirm that. Um, yep. And sometimes I think that's the point, that's one of the problems that may be in the way that we kind of of use research sometimes it's used in a very dichotomous way to say yes or no to something this works better than this does you know as as a yes or a no question so do you think you know again i'm going to kind of tie this into do you think that we need to have more of an interest in kind of a magnitude based perspective rather than a kind of hypothesis testing perspective if you like rather than yes or no do we confirm a hypothesis rather you know how big is this difference if that question makes sense yeah yeah, and i understand where you're getting at um it it it, um it makes me think of a a good friend of mine raymond ostelo who's a a physio in in the netherlands uh he does a lot of research on measurement and uh he he likes to likes to say we're we're dichotomous, dichotomous animals living in a continuous world. Yeah, yeah, but we're, we're forever trying to, to, to cut things, you know, and, 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 and no doubt that that's permeates the world a long way beyond just healthcare and evidence-based practice, um, particularly at the moment, maybe. Um, yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> um, yeah, the, so... I, I think that the the age of hypothesis testing 
and p-values for the purposes of of you know end of is intervention a better than intervention b is coming to an end and yeah. and and the next stage is estimating effect sizes yeah um, and we, that, there's we get sorry, those questions all the time don't we does exercise work does manual therapy work and i'm just like i don't really understand what that question means sometimes if you don't have a hypothesis perspective absolutely and and, and for me it doesn't work on two levels so when we say does something work that question only makes sense if you say versus what yeah and so is it better than nothing is a completely different question than is it better than i don't know something CBT, else <laughs> advice, yeah, yeah, yeah. whatever yeah. um so 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 it doesn't work that question doesn't work on that level but you you're you're dead right does it work um it's um again i quite like rob herbert's view on this it's it's almost inconceivable that, uh, let's say, exercise and 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 versus um, CBT, it's almost inconceivable that they would be exactly the same in terms of their effectiveness. Yeah. Right. So so they just won't. You know, that there will be a difference. The only the the important question though is how big is that difference and in which yeah. direction is it? Yeah. And, 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 and so and, and that's where we get into this idea of how big is enough. Um, and so is <laughs> Don't ask my know, wife that question, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> Promise I won't, Ben. Promise I won't. <laughs> um, yeah, so 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 that so that in answer to your question, absolutely. We're we're clinical research, particularly treatment effectiveness research, um, is if not already, very soon you're going to be all about um, estimate, estimating effects. Yeah, uh, and I, and I, for me, I, that's where I see one of the biggest problems in the way that we consume research is that we use it in this kind of way to, to prove our hypothesis. This is better than this or X is better than Y. And yep. we don't often, you know, actually take into consideration exactly what this piece of research is telling us, you know, how big, you know, who are they studying? How big is the effect? And also yep. one of the biggest things that interests me, which means it probably doesn't interest anyone else, but understanding a little bit more about kind of the inherent variability in effect at an individual level and the inherent variability in the sampling process itself. Um mm. So uh, just to kind of finish off today, um, uh, where do you see kind of understanding things like confidence intervals, you know, helping us with this kind of more effect size based um, kind of perspective? Because even a, generally an effect size is, is a mean value, isn't it? It's an average value. When we yeah. add in a confidence interval, you know, firstly, how, how do you kind of explain confidence intervals and then what do you think they add to our kind of uh, interpretation of the evidence yep okay so um the first thing is that uh confidence intervals that uh, what they actually are is is a little bit complex um and it, yeah <laughs> and uh, but 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 there, there's a way to interpret them which is good enough right i like um, that clinically yeah. enough so, <laughs> that's right yeah yeah um and so so the, the first thing to understand is what is why 
we have confidence intervals. Um, and, and, and that speaks to the difference between a sample and a population. Yeah. All right. So, so we've got a population, and the population is defined by so is usually defined by a condition. Um, so, so let's say our population is people who um, have had an ankle fracture. Um, okay, at football. Right. Now, the population of people with ankle fracture is everyone who's had one ever, and everyone who will have one in the future. All right. So, so, so you can't do that study in a discrete time period. Yeah. So even if even if you could get all of them in a jurisdiction, you still couldn't do that study on the whole population. You can only do it on a sample. Now, what the but but you actually once you've done the study on the sample, you actually don't care what happened in that sample. You only care what will happen in the future when you apply that to someone else. Yeah. All right. So so, so you've got that's why you get an estimate from from the sample because it's an estimate of the mean for everyone in the population okay so that includes everyone in the future now the reason you have a a, a confidence interval is to reflect the fact that that is an estimate of something that you don't know you, that you can never ever measure yeah and 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 so that the confidence interval gives you some idea of uh how sure or unsure you should be that the estimate reflects the mean in the population. So the, 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 the best way to interpret a confidence interval is the population mean is most likely within that range. Yeah. Okay. So, and, and it's, and, and, and actually it's, it's more likely to be in the middle. So somewhere where the estimate is, but it, it's you, you you're fairly confident that the the population mean is in within that range. All other things being considered, in terms of the the quality of the study. So I'm going to ask maybe maybe it's a dumb question. I don't know where yeah. where where does the individual fit into that? Yeah. So um, the confidence interval doesn't give you an indication of the variability across individuals. Right, but it is affected by the variability in the sample. Yes, it is, but and also the size of the sample. Yes, of course. Yeah, you can be yeah, more yeah. confident the bigger the sample. That's right. So, so the the how does that apply to an individual? That comes back to what we were talking about before in in in, in saying, okay, you've got a population, so all those people with ankle fractures, and you've given I don't know half of them. Um, balance exercise and half of them strength exercises. Um, now you've got your person in front of you, and you've got okay, there's you know an effect size of this much in favour of one of them. You still need to make a judgment as to how well that individual or where that person fits in yeah. the range of 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 responses. To treatment A versus treatment B, it's a little bit yeah. complicated, I guess. But but that's and that's the clinical reasoning part. That's the application yes. of of the evidence, and that's that's where the clinical reasoning meets evidence based practice. 
Yeah. Um, and, and, and then there's the other things that go into it. So there's the, the you know, the patient preferences and, you know, what are you capable of actually delivering? Because that has to go into your effect size estimation as well. Um, what do you think this person's going to adhere to? All these sorts of things. Um, so, so, so I think, I think that the, the, um, you know, the, to my mind, you know, I might be going way further than you intended here, but um, to my mind, if, if we're thinking about something like guidelines, right? So, um, the if you're a clinician and you, there's a guideline for a particular condition, whatever it is, and you want to give someone something which is different to the guideline, it's the onus should be on you to say this person is different in such a way that those guidelines which give us this population estimate don't apply to that this individual right. so you still have to go through that reasoning process you still have to understand that resident that evidence because yeah. it, the onus is on you then to say well i don't i know of this information it doesn't apply for these reasons right so if we were to take lower back pain and we could say well the guidelines for lower back pain are generally about non-specific lower back pain and someone yep. comes into with specific back pain then we yep. could probably say that that's a reason why they may not fit these guidelines yeah potentially i mean once you get over the hurdle the diagnosis hurdle yeah 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 well you've got 10 percent <laughs> chance of doing that steve come on give us give us some credit here mate <laughs> <laughs> um yeah absolutely so so the, the as i said I, I think that's i think that's that's the part of of evidence-based practice it, it, it's how you so so you've that that study answer if you like conclusion estimate of effect um that's you know that might be your best guess and so yes, and so yeah. you might go i've got no reason to think this person would 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 respond differently to treatment A versus treatment B than the people in this RCT. Right. So then I'm going to say, well, my best guess is it's going to be exactly the same as the mean. And okay. and bearing in mind, it's a mean for a reason, right? Yes. Um, it's it, it's it's um, yes, there can be, you know, there is a distribution of effects and all that sort of stuff. But it's it's a good guess. Yeah, um, it's a good starting point. Um, yeah. and, and if you're going to deviate from that, then I think the onus is on saying, well, I'm, I, I think it's going to be different for these reasons. Yeah, I mean, I suppose one of the only things that might my mind might say is, you know, a lot of the sample sizes that we have in physical therapy research mm. probably means that, you know, maybe the mean. I mean, how confident can we be in that mean sometimes based on, you know, the, the variation of responses and how that might skew things? Yeah, look, I mean, this is where this is where you need that working knowledge. Of yeah, yeah. fair enough. You know, that's where you just those 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 principles of research methods. And, and you know, this is also, you know, there's there's plenty of plenty of bashing of the, the old evidence hierarchy. Um, but there's reasons why it is the way it is and 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 no it's 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 not you know it's not the bible you know you can get yeah. really shitty meta-analyses which are not of any value um but all things being equal there's there's value in getting more people together there's value in yeah. a really robust rct 
Um, and, and it gives you confidence beyond some other pieces of information for certain reasons. But you have to understand what those reasons are. But it comes back to this dichotomous thing again, Steve, doesn't it? You know, RCTs are the best thing or they're, they're the worst thing. Whereas actually, yep. it might, act, you know, it's not an R, uh, sorry, a, a systematic review, not an RCT. Um, yep. so, so this kind of suddenly systematic reviews were at the top of the pile. Now they're worthless. And the point is, it's never been, it's not the SR that's the problem. It's a, it might be in the way that it's done or the way it's interpreted, not the actual Agreed. concept itself. Agree. Yeah, agree. So, so I can 100% see why it's much easier to just say something works and something else doesn't. I think we should completely go back to this dichotomous view because my brain hurts and (laughs) and it's hard work, isn't it? (laughs) Think about think about the 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 poor researchers that won't have a job if you do that, though, Ben. Yeah, I mean, look, my, I, I don't know if I've even got that much feeling in my heart, Steve. My wife says that I was a cold, hard pebble, but, you know, I don't get it. That's, a, that's another discussion. Um, but, look, Steve, you've been absolutely fantastic, and I, I really appreciate your perspectives, you know, of viewing this um, not just from a statistical point of view, which we kind of touched on, but also this larger conceptual um, view. And there's this nerdy part of me that really enjoys this that I've been trying to you know beat out with my cool side but it keeps on rising to the surface <laughs> give give up give up Ben <laughs> is it just going to come out is it I've been trying for 40 years Steve I don't know what I'm going to yeah. do yeah uh, tomorrow <laughs> just get used to it just get used to it no look um yeah. Steve where can people find you and your work and, and that kind of stuff yeah look I uh, you can reach me on Twitter at Steve Camper one um if you google me i'm not that hard to find at university of sydney um email me if you've got questions and stuff like that i'm always happy to interact yeah Fun. steve I've, steve. I've, I've given full reign to my nerdy side so yeah no no i was going to say steve's <laughs> always been very accommodating to probably some of the kind of simplistic and annoying questions that i've thrown at him o- over the past few years but I, i've always appreciated um your time steve so thank you very much And I look forward to speaking more in the future. My pleasure, Ben. Thanks for having me on. You have been listening to the Core Kinetic Podcast. Thank you for tuning in and we look forward to seeing you next time.